I'm your host, Ray Dogum, and welcome to Vibecast. Vibecast is Vibe Bio's weekly podcast where we explore some of the hottest topics in drug development, investment strategies, and technology innovation. Our guest today is Raphael Rosengarten, a Yale PhD graduate who founded Genialis in 2015, where he and his team are leveraging computational precision medicine to find new ways to treat disease. Raphael, thanks for joining me today. Ray, thanks so much for having me. It's great to talk to you again. So uh, why don't we start off by you giving the audience and community a little bit more detail about your background, your education, perhaps um, more about you know your journey uh, up to this point. No, I'd be happy to. Um, I consider myself kind of a bit of an accidental entrepreneur. So, so you know, I've sort of never had a plan, and and where I am today doesn't necessarily reflect a whole bunch of deliberate decisions, but rather just kind of following my interests and and doing things I care cared about. Um, you know, I could tell the story backwards to front or front to back. I'll I'll do it front to back. My first scientific passion was was marine biology and natural history. Um, I have an uncle who's a cell biologist whose laboratory was in the south of France in an old school marine biology lab. This was sort of a laboratory of a previous generation where you could get funded to do basic scientific research on really cool model organisms that aren't the kind of medical models we think of today. So things like sea urchins and and jellyfish and tinapores. And I love that stuff. I was seven years old and learned how to snorkel and I knew that's what I wanted to do for the rest of my life. Um, we'll flash forward a little ways. In college, I got to scratch that itch and I studied a lot of tropical ecology. And then I went on to work at running a laboratory at Yale, working on marine invertebrates. But more and more with every kind of layer of education and, and work experience, I wanted to understand the why. I, I wanted to understand the mechanism of how, how the beautiful natural history came to be and behaved and, and how we got there. Um, I ended up doing my PhD at Yale in molecular genetics uh, in the laboratory of Steve Delaporta. So this was getting you know into the actual molecules. At some point, uh, we figured out how to grow our critters in the lab. So I quit scuba diving for my thesis and instead you know just started pipetting clear liquids and extracting DNA and extracting RNA and sequencing. And, you know, this was the early aughts. So you know the first human genome had just been published. Um, short read sequencing, what we now think of as sort of the, the gold standard, like Illumina sequencing didn't exist yet. In fact, uh, some of the, the precursors like Selexa uh, actually had just been, been formed and were kind of pioneering that technology. So we did a lot of you know, what feels like uh, old man, old fashioned molecular biology to, to get at genomic sequences back then. Um, after grad school, uh, I made a, a big shift. Uh, maybe this is the, the, the theme of, of my journey is that I don't have an attention span that keeps me doing one thing for that long. So I made a shift and went and worked at uh, Joint Bioenergy Laboratory. This was uh, a National Lawrence Berkeley lab in, in the Bay Area. And that's where I got the, the bug to commercialize stuff. I I've had lots of friends and colleagues who were starting companies. I got to, to write a patent with Jay Kiesling, who's a preeminent chemical engineer who's running the lab, and my, my other uh, advisor, Nathan Hilson. And that's what I want to do. Uh, it didn't really matter the science so much as I wanted to have an actual impact on society by way of going private sector. Um, life has a way of getting in the way of things. So my, my personal life took me back to Houston. That's where I'm calling from today, but moved to Houston in 2011. Um, this is the other theme of my professional career, following a girl. She's now my wife, so that worked out. Uh, but I moved to Houston and, and took a postdoc at the medical center. Houston has the world's largest medical center. It wasn't hard to, to imagine finding a job here, but it meant going back into biomedicine and frankly, in my case, going back to basic research. Um, it was through that experience, though, that I met some amazing data scientists. Uh, from, these were actually Slovenian data scientists who were collaborating with our lab. One of them had just started Genialis in Slovenia. 
and wanted an American-based co-founder. And I drank the Kool-Aid, man. I saw this machine learning and I saw what the software we were building could do. It was, I was using it. I was, a, I was an early customer. I was a you know, user number one. It was changing the way I did research and I wanted to bring this to the masses. And so we thought about, you know, where can we have the biggest impact? Um, how can we apply these technologies to, to really help people, to help society? Um, and so that's kind of how we embarked on Genialis. So interesting. Thanks for sharing all that in the context and the background. Um, it, it's quite interesting how, you know, people's careers can transform over time and your interests lead you to different types of opportunities. And those opportunities lead you to, mm -hmm. um, you know, founding a company potentially. So that's really exciting. Uh, and I also know that you're a podcaster too, which is, I, which I love. Uh, talking to podcasters and your podcast is called talking precision medicine. And I wanted to ask you who your favorite guest was on that show that, that you host. Um, I, I know that you interviewed Alok Tai, mm -hmm. the CEO of Vibio. Mm -hmm. um, so I just wanted you to. We did. We actually did back to back Vibio podcasts. So if you look in our archives, not, you don't have to go that far back December, January. So December, 2022, uh, January 23, we had back to back Vibio podcasts. Alok was a great guest. Um, Suzanne harris was a great guest. It's hard to say. It's like asking who's your favorite child. And, you know, we all have one. Um, probably the most impactful guest I've ever had, though, in terms of how I think about building my own company was Tina Larson, who's a chief operating officer of Recursion Pharma. And this was before Recursion went public. Um, for those of you who don't know Recursion Pharma's story, um, they are a publicly traded pharmaceutical company. They've got multiple clinical uh, assets but they are one of the most successful to date kind of AI biotechs, right? And they follow, at least from my perception, um, what feels like a really kind of traditional startup story, right? Two guys in a garage with a bunch of busted equipment they bought in, you know, hauled to Salt Lake City on a U-Haul from San Diego, setting up proof of concept at a really small scale, but with a huge vision. And this was Chris Gibson and, and his co-founders, you know, years and years ago. Um, but Recursion, and Chris is still the CEO of this publicly traded company, which is actually pretty uncommon, right, for someone coming out of grad school to found a company and then take it all the way to the market. So I really admire Recursion as a company. I admire Chris as a leader. But Tina, his chief operating officer, was a great guest because she emphasized to me that to build a great company or to build a great business, you have to build a great company full of great people. And she talked about how bringing in a chief people officer and really focusing on hiring for culture, um, hiring for values, on focusing on the people is important. And it was around the time that we did that interview when Jeannie Alice was thinking, how do we articulate our core values? And, you know, we've got four of them, but our North Star value is people first, right? And so I feel like just this, this short conversation I have with Tina that turned into the podcast really impacted the way I thought about what matters in terms of building a great business and a great company. So interesting. And, you know, I didn't actually know the story behind uh, you being approached to co-found Genialis. So that's kind of interesting. What were you thinking at the time? Were you thinking this is, I know you said that you were one of the first users, so it was like, yeah. it seemed like a no brainer, but did you have any right. hesitations? What was some of the thought process there? <laughs> yeah. I mean, I'll give you the unvarnished version. So, you know, this is 2000, this was before I joined, so 2014-ish in Houston. Um, Houston has this amazing biomedical community, uh, this amazing hospital community. I would call the startup scene here still fairly young, fairly nascent, although I just moved back after a five-year hiatus. So, and, and I'm going, um, you know, there's a, a big new facility that's launching around collaborative biotech, et cetera. So the, the startup scene here is growing. But, you know, 10 years ago, it was really, really young. And 
there's this chicken and egg problem of, you know, how do you build great companies without having a vibrant venture community? And how do you attract a venture community without having a lot of deal flow already? And it's a very hard kind of cold start problem to solve. And so I wanted to do something commercial. Um, I like the idea of startup because I saw my friends in the Bay Area doing it. And I, I like the idea of having, you know, being basically a beginner, but having some seniority, right? Being, being having some agency over building something. And there, frankly, just weren't a ton of options. And this friend of mine who I've been collaborating with in the lab, who I really liked, we went on a camping and rock climbing trip. Um, this is a you know, genialis sort of self-selects for, for outdoorsy, active, you know, climbers and hikers and, and, and adventurers. Uh, my colleague Mika and I, we went up to, to Reimer's Ranch to go rock climbing outside of Austin. And he just made a hard pitch for me. He's like, listen, this is going to be a lot of fun. This is going to be great. You know, you, you already use this stuff. Um, I don't remember all the things he said, but, but we really connected. He's still one of my best friends in the world, you know, eight, nine years later. Um, and it seemed like a neat opportunity. So I, I went to my wife and I said, listen, this is what I want to do. I had already kind of committed to being the trailing spouse, right? So like being an academic didn't make a ton of sense because if her job moved, then I'd have to give up my lab. I said, this will give me flexibility. The pay is crap, but I'm going to get a bunch of equity. And, you know, maybe one day it'll be worth a lot. And she's like, just don't take a pay cut from your postdoc salary. And that's fine. <laughs> so that was, that was how that conversation went. But, you know, I didn't know anything, right? And so we had a founding CEO. I wasn't the CEO at the beginning. And when our founding CEO, whose name is Nate, he's since gone on to found another company and actually has just spun out another company still, you know, he's really, you know, tried and true entrepreneur. Um, he said, you know, we were thinking of bringing you on as the head of product, right? You're going to be our chief product officer to build our software for, you know, the data aggregation, the data management, et cetera. And I said, this is great. And then we hung up, we got off the Zoom call or whatever it was, Google Meets call. And I went and I Googled, what does a chief product officer do? And I spent the next two, three weeks reading every single thing I could from like the Silicon Valley product blogs. Like, what does a product officer do? How do you build software product? And, um, but that's, you know, that's how being a scientist and being a PhD equips someone to be an entrepreneur because, you know, a scientist is essentially someone who's trained in the art of learning. You, know, you have to learn new things all the time. And being an entrepreneur is the exact same thing. And I think that's why I love it so much. You know, no two days of my work are the same. And every day I have to learn something completely new that I didn't know the day before. Absolutely. The skills you learn as a scientist, you can definitely apply in the business world as well. Uh, it's basically problem solving, critical thinking. And that leads me to the question, mm -hmm. what is the problem that Genialis is trying to solve for people who might not be familiar with the company? Yeah. So Genialis, um, we bill ourselves as the RNA biomarker company. So we're a, a computational precision medicine company. We're focused pretty firmly in oncology, so in cancer. And the problem we're trying to solve is that cancer drugs just don't work well enough, right? So even the biggest blockbuster cancer drugs, we'll talk about like Merck's Keytruda, um, which is a checkpoint inhibitor. This is a multi-billion dollar franchise. I think I saw the number 16 billion floated in some, some headline today, right? So that's either annual sales, maybe it's even quarterly sales, I don't know. It's a multi-billion dollar franchise. It works for about a third of the patients who get it, right? So that means 67% of the patients who get this drug are not going to get better. They might get sicker because all drugs are poisons. It's just a question of dosage. Um, and it means if they're taking this, they're not taking something else that might work better. So the problem we're trying to solve is that cancer drugs, even the best ones, just don't work well enough for enough people. They work great for some, but not for enough. There's a secondary problem, which is there are loads of molecules or drugs that could work really well, but again, for a subset of people. And these are never going to make it as medicines. They're never going to make it through clinical trials because they're going to fail to meet certain efficacy uh, standards. 
you know, maybe they work for 15% of the people and that's just not enough to get approved. But what if that's all they were trying to do is to work for the people it's going to work for? So we build, we build machine learning models that we use as diagnostic biomarkers, either to help drug development, where we partner with Biopharma directly on their development programs, or we use them as clinical diagnostic devices where we partner with you know, diagnostic companies to deliver these as, as commercially available diagnostics. And the goal is essentially the same. Let's make sure that the right patients get the right drug at the right time. Um, but there, there are different places where we can have impact on, on patient outcomes. And one of those is for on-market drugs, and the other is for, for drugs that are still in clinical development or translation. Very interesting. And I know that there's been a lot of developments in the cancer and predictive biomarker space. So I'm wondering, in the last five to 10 years, how has this landscape evolved and changed? And how has Genialis maybe adapted to that change? Yeah, so there are two kind of prevailing trends, and I think they're they're related to one another. The first one is that higher throughput data collection is, is now really important. So if you look at just approved companion diagnostics, the FDA has approved something on the order of 150 some odd devices, but those only measure 30 distinct, 30 unique biomarkers. And most of those are single molecule, right? So they measure a protein, single protein, like in the case of Keytruda, you might measure the protein expression of PDL1 or something like that. Or you'll you'll measure whether a cancer patient, a tumor, has the mutation in the gene that the drug targets. And that's it. That's the one thing you're measuring. Now, there are others that measure a few molecules. Um, but we're seeing more and more um, biomarkers that are willing to take on more biological complexity, that measure more things. And the way we're generating those data means a lot more data. So now we're talking about next generation sequencing, right? The Illumina sequencing I mentioned at the beginning, um, or higher throughput protein collection. So you're generating a lot more data. You have a lot more information from which you can make decisions. The approved clinical devices are lagging behind our ability to generate data by a decade or so, maybe 15 years in terms of our willingness to or our ability to build diagnostics that reliably use all that data. But that's where Genialis is innovating. The second big change is in the acceptance and adoption of artificial intelligence and machine learning in the diagnostic space. Um, I saw a plot just this week uh, of sort of a, an exponential increase in the number of FDA cleared devices. These aren't necessarily approved CDX, but FDA cleared devices that use AI or machine learning somewhere in them, right? So we have different ways of doing that and software as a medical device is one. So we can use machine learning algorithms as part of the diagnostic workflow or part of the diagnostic device. Now, the reason why those two things are related is the machine learning requires a lot of data to be useful. And so, you know, we had to get to a point where biological data started to approach big data in order for the machine learning to, to matter. Interesting. And yeah, let's talk about AI and how that's, you know, also evolved over the last few years. So what opportunities mm -hmm. would you say are, you know, most critical or important uh, for AI-assisted biomarker discovery? Yeah, I think AI is going to be an essential tool in biomarker discovery going forward. And again, the opportunity and also the challenge is this idea of building diagnostics that don't run from biological complexity, but figure out a way to abstract it. So rather than measuring one molecule or two, can we actually, can we build models that actually learn or understand the prevailing disease biology? Can they understand the, the subtleties, the interactions of the, the cells in the disease tissue? Um, can they simultaneously understand the genetic background of the patients? And so this is where tools like machine learning, which are essentially a toolkit for, for detecting patterns that maybe the human eye wouldn't know to look for, um, are really, really critical. It's also why Genialis prefers to work with, with molecules or, or analytes that we think do a better job of capturing that complexity. So our favorite kind of molecule today to work with is, is RNA. We use a lot of RNA sequencing. 
And we like RNA because it does two things at the same time. On the one hand, it's a fairly dynamic readout of the disease phenotype. It's a little bit closer to what's, you know, what's actually causing the disease than, than is, for example, DNA, which is more static. I know DNA can change within a tumor, but it's more of a baseline readout. But you know what? You can learn all of the genetic information from RNA. So with a single sequencing run, if you're doing RNA, and we do this all the time now, we call all the mutations. We get all that information you would typically rely on DNA for. But we're also getting complex signatures, dynamic signatures. We're able to understand the immune system and the, the vasculature system and all these other fundamental biological systems, hallmarks of cancer, on top of the genetic layer. And this is where machine learning really shines. Then we can train models to learn those, those biological phenotypes um, in, in a really important an interpretable way. And, and so, you know, it's, it's this confluence of having new kinds of data or actually RNA sequencing is not new, but newly reliable data, data that is now highly commoditized, that's standardized enough that the FDA is comfortable with it, right? Plus the machine learning um, that I think is really important. We're seeing machine learning and AI infiltrate every aspect of drug development discovery, right? From early targets and, and new molecules, right? Generative chemistry, all the way through point of care and like even, you know, digital devices that patients use, right? Like apps on your phone for healthcare diagnostics. Um, I'm really bullish in this space uh, as a co-founder. Genialis was a co-founding member and I'm a board director of the Alliance for AI and healthcare. And that's an industry advocacy organization whose mission is to make sure um, that we have responsible adoption of AI within the global healthcare umbrella. And so we do a lot of formative work at the regulatory level, thought leadership around standards and that kind of thing. And so that's a side hustle for me. It's not paying. It's, a, it's just a you know, labor of love. But it's important because you know, we're trying to build the world that, that Genialis wants to operate in. Yeah, I'm very glad that you and others like you are thinking about these sort of potential risks and challenges with AI, especially on the ethical side of things and um, you know, preventing any sort of bias or maybe building models that are actually hurtful or not beneficial potentially. Mm -hmm. So what would you say are some of those risks and challenges that the industry faces in terms of AI drug discovery? Yeah. So, you know, we can bucket the risks in, in different ways. One is, is technology risk, right? So getting it right, it's hard. I mentioned, you know, sort of biological data had to approach big data to be kind of useful for machine learning. But the truth is most biological data and especially clinical data are what I would call small data, right? So if you think about the size of a clinical trial, um, you know, I think the average enrollment or the median enrollment for a, a cancer clinical trial is something like 200 patients. Like that's a phase two, whatever. It's not a great data. That's not a big data set for training, right? So you end up having to, to amalgamate a bunch of data. You have to assemble a bunch of data from different data sources, which creates technology challenges. Um, that's a big area where we, we solve these problems all the time so that we can build really useful data sets from lots of different small sources. Um, there's regulatory risk and, you know, we don't want to get it wrong. You know, every time you hear about, for example, a self-driving car that crashes, that's a black eye for the kind of self-driving car movement, even if those crashes are less frequent than, than you know, human-driven cars. Um, I think, you know, we run the same risk if, if and when we've got, for example, human design gene therapies if one, or AI design gene therapies. If one of those happens to be fatal in a safety trial, that's going to be a black eye if our diagnostics aren't, you know, doing what they're supposed to. So, you know, one way to mitigate that regulatory risk on the AI side is that you treat AI discovered assets, whether they're drugs or they're diagnostics, the way you do drugs and diagnostics discovered the old way. You put them through the same rigorous regulatory scrutiny. You know, once you get them to the point of being an asset, they're just an asset. It kind of doesn't matter how you got there. You still have to treat them, you know, with that kind of scrutiny. Where this starts to fall apart a little bit is that AI, the whole point of machine learning is that it's learning and you can get really quick feedback. If you can feed in results from your model, you can 
sort of have the model relearn, retrain and relearn. And so this is a really interesting area of regulatory innovation where we have to think about what are the right regulatory frameworks for either continuous or frequently updated models, right? Models that are going to change. And the FDA is taking this on, but it's not solved yet. Yeah. And it's really, you know, like you said, it is a challenge, a technical challenge as well, because, you know, it's difficult to identify what sort of weights you want to put on different variables, what's most important, what data sets uh, should you consider high quality versus maybe, you know, of lesser quality. So I'm, I'm curious, what competitive advantage do you think Genialis has as opposed to other maybe AI drug discovery companies? What's what's the special sauce in, in your company's AI model? Yeah, our special sauce um, has a number of ingredients. One of the ingredients is, is our approach to it. So, you know, I mentioned our core value, our North Star, is people first. And we think about that in terms of how we build our company, but we absolutely think about that in terms of how we build our products, right? So putting the human, the patient, and the human and their data at the center of everything we do. Um, and that sounds kind of obvious and maybe even a bit salesman, but but it, it's meaningful in terms of how we construct our R&D programs. A lot of companies have built really cool AI models that are almost entirely trained on, on preclinical data sets. And that's a fine place to start to build some hypotheses, but you have to be able to translate it into the clinic, into human beings. And so, so we've solved a lot of problems about how to do that, technology problems, but we also, where at all possible, will insert kind of the human data and the human aspect from the beginning. Um, another piece of this, as I mentioned, is our, our technology suite. We focused on, on building tools and solving problems that have very little sex appeal, but these are the kind of pernicious problems that have prevented uh, advancement in the field. So. I, just to give an anecdote, I met a colleague at a conference recently. This was a clinical biomarkers and world CDX meeting. And this is a guy who's an industry veteran. He's been working for big pharma and small pharma for you know, decades. And he himself has been trying to build biomarkers from RNA-seq data. And he said, you know, I've just basically given up. We can't figure out how to build you know, signatures that actually work when we take them to our patient. And this is exactly what Genialis has solved. We have figured out why a lot of RNA signatures and other kinds of biomarkers fail to translate. And so by solving this translation piece, by putting people first so that we can take you know, signatures that are derived from any number of sources, from human sources, preclinical models, et cetera, and actually make them work in the clinic, make, and, and more to the point, make them work on real patient populations um, is, is huge. Part of our approach is no secret. It's not so much secret sauce, it's just diligence. We insist on independent validation of all of our models on as diverse a data set as possible. So we just had an announcement with Cancer Research UK and Cancer Research Horizons in, in, in the United Kingdom uh, as part of a data sharing collaboration to make sure we're getting access to data that are represented in their sources. Um, we should have another data sharing agreement coming out soon um, that gives us access to another really distinct cohort. We're building these collaborations all over the world to make sure we capture as much ethnographic and, and genetic diversity in our validation data sets as possible. Um, you know, at the end of the day, we can't just build diagnostics that work for white people, right? Like that's, that's not going to serve humanity. 100%. And I appreciate you sharing all that and the background behind um, your AI model and also just kind of why you're so focused on RNA seq data. So uh, my next sort of topic or question is around your fundraising journey, actually. So what is Genialis's mm -hmm. current stage of funding and how much have you guys raised so far? Yeah, so we're post Series A. We closed our Series A. Um, the first close was in January 2023. The second close in March of that year. Uh, and that round was led by a really wonderful set of co-leads, um, Taiwania Capital, based in Taipei and, and also Silicon Valley, um, and uh, WFARM Innovation Fund, which is a strategic fund associated with WFARM Pharmaceuticals in Switzerland. And, and it was exactly the round composition we were looking for. Um, Taiwania have a, sort of a mixed practice of investing in, in cutting edge 
technology, AI, microchips, et cetera, and also a life science fund. So these guys really understand kind of the intersection of the two. Um, and Debbie Farm is a clinical oncology development company. They, they bring in molecules preclinical or, or very early clinic, and they do the translational work and they get them through phase two and then partner them out for, for further development and, and commercialization. And so bringing in you know, smart money is really important to us. Uh, so that was our Series A. Um, we'll be raising a Series B again you know, sooner probably than, than it would be nice to take a, a break and execute, but we'll, we'll probably start meeting investors in early 2024 to talk about our story and kind of find out where, where they stand. Um, but we're in pretty good shape right now, runway-wise, in terms of you know, building our products um, and the commercial traction around those. But you know, we'll be out raising a Series B soon enough. Um, and again, we're going to be looking for really visionary funds, uh, funds that, that are willing to place big bets on a whole new paradigm, right? On, on changing the way we do medicine um, in a fundamental way. Do you have a target that you want to raise for the Series B? And like what kind of goals are associated with that? Yeah, yes, but it, it's not a fixed and firm target. Uh, but <clears throat> your other part of your question is how much have we raised to date? The Series A was, I think, about 13.4 maybe, and we'd raised 2.4 before that. So, um, you know, we've raised 15 and a half, almost 16 million to date. Um, the Series B will be sizable. Um, the main thing that we're going to want to do with the Series B is, you know, we're so right now our product lineup is we've got lots of, our marquee product is called Responder ID. It's a, a technology framework for developing and deploying machine learning models for diagnostic you know, applications, both in clinical development on market. And within Responder ID, we've got lots of these trained and validated models. These are models that have proved on patient data, either through retrospective or prospective studies, to do a really good job of predicting which patients can respond to therapy. And these are built around mechanisms of actions of novel drugs, right? So drugs that target the tumor microenvironment, drugs that target, for example, KRAS inhibitors, which is an emerging, I think, soon to be very important field of, of cancer drugs. But they're not models that are built for one drug in particular. These are very general. They're pan, they tend to be pan-cancer. They tend to work from multiple modalities. And that's, that's part of what sets them apart. But what we're actually building, Ray, is not just a model here and a model there. Our models come together like Voltron. Right. We're building a supermodel. We're building something that is going to be comprehensive, at least for solid tumors and potentially for heme tumors as well, where we can take five years from now, any cancer patient, any cancer patient, and you know, assay their tumor and place them confidently in a phenotypic landscape among all other cancer patients we've ever seen and say, this is what dis- distinguishes your tumor. Here are the drugs that are most likely to work, or the, at least the mechanisms of drugs. And in the event that we find patients where there isn't a drug that works, because that's going to happen, we will understand exactly what is the driving biology. We're going to understand what it is that's really causing the cancer, or causing it to progress. And so we can use that to discover new drugs. But the point is that, that we're building something really comprehensive. And, uh, you know, historically, cancer has been understood to be too variable, too, you know, heterogeneous, too diverse to wrap your head around, you know, kind of a, a one size fits all. And this, this is is a sum of its part or something that's greater than the sum of its parts that I think is gonna do a really good job of, of being a, a the tool of note for any cancer patient. That sounds really exciting. And yeah, I mean, you know, cancer is notoriously difficult to track down and understand, especially if you think about uh, how the care team is assembled now for a cancer patient. But if you, you know, add an AI assistant into that equation, there might be some new potential Mm -hmm. uh, ways of uh, not just diagnosing, but also treating or finding treatments for for these patients. Mm -hmm. Um, So what kind of, are you seeking any sort of specific partnerships for the company? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, We actually have a head of strategic partnerships 
you know, a person in a role uh, with that title. Most of our strategic partnerships these days are working with academic clinical centers of excellence or um, national biobanks or private companies that have collected really interesting data sets. And so, you know, we kind of describe our approach to data collection, not so much as a shotgun approach where we try to get all the data in the world we can and then sift through it, but, you know, which, you know, pardon the analogy might be considered like a shotgun approach, but we use very much a sniper rifle approach. It's let's figure out for this program, what are the exact data sets we need to build, right? You know, it's, it's to avoid the, the sort of pitfall of the adage garbage in, garbage out. We want to make sure that we're not training models on just a general collection of data that don't have anything to do with each other. So we build partnerships around coherent data sets that serve specific biomarker programs. And so we're always open to, to um, building more of those. And like I said, we just announced one with CRUK. Um, we've announced a data partnership with, with uh, by the time this airs, we'll have announced a data partnership with Tempest. You know, and that's one where we're, we're buying access to data, but they've got a very, you know, comprehensive library to choose from. And we've got lots of other partnerships like that. The flip side of this is once we've got trained models, we want to partner with pharma companies that are developing drugs in those spaces. And frankly, with diagnostics companies that are interested in building kits around those. So really partnership is a big part of our execution plan. That's really exciting. So uh, I would say, you know, there are so many companies that are also trying to do something similar to what you're doing. Mm -hmm. What sets you uh, apart, would you say? And and for the rest of this year and actually 2024, what's, mm -hmm. what are you looking forward to the most? You know, what sets us apart? Um, I mean, in some ways, the proof is in the pudding, right? So there are a lot of companies working on similar problems. Um, we have built uh, with, a, with a partner, with a biotech partner, a model called the Zerna TME panel. Um, we did all the informatics and computational work and, and you know, uh, in silico validation, everything. So, you know, our fingerprints are all over this and it's part of our, part of our, our responder ID um, product lineup. This model has been accepted by the FDA for use in, in pivotal clinical trials and investigational device. It's being commercialized by three different global diagnostics companies. It works. It works incredibly well. We've published it in Journal of Clinical Oncology, Frontiers in Oncology, um, and at every major conference for the past four years. We've shown that this, this predictive model can predict response to multiple different therapeutics. So we've shown at least six different drugs, three investigational, three on market, um, that all have different targets and mechanisms of action. And we've shown this across 11 or 12 different tumor types. And now I'm talking about, you know, these are retrospective analyses on 15,000 patients. Like we've actually, we've done it. Like we've shown that, that responder ID, the people first approach in our technology suite can build, you know, transcriptomics based models that actually do this, right? So what sets us apart is that we've shown that we know how to do it. Why that, why we are able to do it, whereas maybe others haven't gotten there yet, I think is a combination of all the things we've talked about, right? It's, it's the, the approach, the technology, you know, and, and kind of aspects of the secret sauce that, that are going to remain secret. But it's also, you know, it's just a different way of thinking about building these models. You know, it's, it's planning big and, and aiming to make them as broadly clinically useful as possible. Yeah, it sounds like you guys can talk the talk and walk the walk. So that's really incredible. And you're helping other companies and biotechs really navigate their inflection points when they're looking at where they should focus on and how they should develop their drugs. So that's very important because oftentimes younger biotech companies get stuck in and uh, you know their direction, mm -hmm. so you can really pinpoint exactly, mm -hmm. precisely where they should kind of uh, what they should be working on. So that's really helpful. Yeah, that's right. I mean, resources are always limited. Even big companies have resource limitations, right? So using our using our models can can absolutely streamline things and make sure that that people are deploying their resources, you know, to maximize patient benefit, but also maximize the chance of a drug getting approved, of getting its label expanded, 
um, you know, so it's good business because it's good for people. I appreciate that. Raphael, thank you so much for your time. I appreciate you talking us through uh, the company, uh, you know, your origins with tropical ecology and marine biology. And then also, you know, I would like to give you the opportunity to share anything else you want to with the audience community here before we jump off. Yeah, I appreciate that. You know, Genialis is excited to have conversations with any partners out there who are interested in what we're doing. You know, again, our, our vision is a world where healthcare delivers the best outcomes for patients, their families, and their communities, right? So, so we really think of this as a, as a broad mandate. And, you know, we're, we're using this people-first approach to, to actually transform medicine through data. So again, if you're a data partner, um, a pharmaceutical company, a diagnostics company, or, or a really brave investor in this space, you know, we'd love to, to continue the conversation. That's excellent. And if you enjoyed what you heard today, please check us out on YouTube, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts. We really appreciate, appreciate your likes, subscriptions, and uh, reshare. So thank you so much. Mm -hmm.